Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Before we dig into today's episode, I first want to apologize for being so late. It was supposed to be up last Sunday, but due to a lot of publishing deadlines, I just couldn't do it. But I'm thrilled to be bringing today to you an interview with author Alison Bruce. Alison is a Canadian crime writer and the author of Ghost Writer, as well as quite a number of other titles. So I'm really looking forward to sharing our interview with you. Also, today's story is going to be from EFD-1, Starship Goodwords, Carrick Publishing, 2012, and the story is Family Values by Sylvia Maltosh-Warsh. Before we get there, though, I just want to mention to you all a podcast that I've been thoroughly enjoying for the past year, and I've been meaning to share information with you about it. It's titled, for podcast listeners, Canadian True Crime. And it is hosted by Christy Lee, who is an Australian born, uh, living now in Canada, and she is an aficionado of Canadian true crime. So all of her stories are based on real Canadian cases, and her telling and her presentation is truly wonderful, although not for young children, please, because some of these stories are quite gruesome. But if true crime is something that you enjoy as much as I do, please look up Canadian True Crime with host Christy Lee. I think you're going to get a big kick out of it. We've had a terrible week in the news. Another terrible week, I should say. I should preface that always by saying the word another. There was a shooting and 11 left dead in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Tree of Life Synagogue. This was a truly horrific hate crime, and it needs to be dealt with as such. I believe that the the person who I shall not name, who was um, responsible for the shooting, has been charged with hate crimes and quite a number of other counts, and um, I'm hoping that he will never again see the light of day. I don't even want to talk about the perpetrator of the act because these guys go into these things for the glory and I won't bring them that. But I encourage any of you who have not already heard the stories of the victims and their families to please research this and look up the stories and try to memorialize in your own quiet way the lives of these 11 people because they are lives that were truly wasted It's another episode of extreme sorrow in our Western world that really should not have happened, based only on hate. While we wait for that good news, let's focus on the craft of writing. I want to talk to you about a trick that I use when I am editing my own work. So if you are attempting to self-edit your work, in particular fiction, but this can be true of any work, Great writers and great editors will tell you that the overuse of adverbs is a big no-no in writing. You may feel like, well, you want to be descriptive in your text, and um, and that's not always a bad thing. Some truly great writers have uh, had wonderfully descriptive passages, 
and we don't want our work just to be cold and cut and dried. However, most writers, in particular new writers, lean far too heavily on adjectives and adverbs. And today I want to talk to you about a little trick I use for weeding out redundant adverbs. In your Word document, use the search function. Type in the suffix ly and just search those out. I think you're going to be just amazed at how many of those adverbs are in your first draft of your work. And getting out, I would say 90% of those, is going to help you when you approach an editor or a publisher or an agent. They're going to view your work as being a lot more professional than what you think it might be right now. If you simply apply that one trick, um, again, that search for the suffix ly and eradicate as many of those redundant adverbs as you can. That's my tip for today. And now what I want to do is I want to bring you our interview with Alison Bruce. Alison writes history, mystery, and suspense. Her books combine clever mysteries well-researched backgrounds, and a touch of romance. Her protagonists are marked by their strength of character, sense of humor, and the ability to adapt sooner or later to new situations. Four of her novels have been finalists for genre awards. She is a copywriter, an editor, a graphic designer since 1992. She's also been a comic book store manager, a small press publisher, and a web designer. Currently, she is the Executive Director of Crime Writers of Canada, and I've known Allison for many years through the CWC. Her titles include Hazardous Unions, A Bodyguard to Remember, Deadly Season, Under a Texas Star, Deadly Legacy, and her latest, Ghost Writer, which is the one that I'll be talking with her about today. So without further ado, please give a great big welcome to Allison E. Bruce. Good morning. Good morning, Allison. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Good. Good. And how is everything in your neck of the woods? You're located in, I think, um, are, are you in Hamilton area? No, I'm in Guelph. You're in Guelph. Okay. Okay. I wanted Guelph, to say yeah. Guelph to start with. I don't know why I got thrown off on that. <laughs> we're, we're, well, we're more into the snow belt than you are. Oh, okay. We're going to air this episode on October 28th, but um, I'll let our listeners in on a little secret. We're actually recording on April 21st, and uh, we've got snow on April 21st, and I am so annoyed. Me too. <laughs> annoyed is exactly how I describe it. Uh -huh. I don't think we're alone, Allison. I really don't think we're alone on that. Now, you've been writing for a really long time. Um, can you tell our listeners when you started uh, writing novels? Oh, now, writing novels, that would be my late teens. Okay. I started my first novel, I suppose, when um, <laughs> when I was at Ryerson, mm -hmm. just before, actually. And I used, I was a terrible student there, just terrible. I got into the program because I, I thought I could, for some reason, I thought I could slide from home ec into journalism <laughs> after the first year. Okay. So, 
on him. Mm-hmm. I had my comeuppance, though, mm-hmm. because uh, I uh, <laughs> I even wrote on my lap when I was in the washroom, and I accidentally left my clipboard there. And when I went back, it was gone. Oh. And I never saw it, that story, never saw the light of day. Oh. But honestly, I did not flush it. It wasn't that bad. Well, it probably wasn't <laughs> that bad. It was my first novel for him. So this was in the but days yes, before tweeting in the John. You were actually writing in the John. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I wonder. I wonder uh, if anyone else was writing in the John in the days before Twitter. <laughs> but that's funny. So tell us about some of your early titles. Uh, used to, uh, now, are you talking about the published ones? Or the published ones or unpublished or both? Actually, I'm interested in both because I know that for many professional writers uh, like ourselves and, and for anyone who doesn't know it, Alison Bruce is a professional writer and a member of the Crime Writers of Canada and the backbone of the Crime Writers of Canada. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more too. But for most professional writers, our early work never does see the light of day. So if you're a new writer and you're thinking that your first manuscript is just going to be such a huge hit and it's going to carry you to the end of days um well you know that might be but it sure isn't for most of us so yes Allison please tell me about a couple of the unpublished and then a couple of your published early titles okay well to start off with I wrote in a completely different genre I I, I started in my teens I was much more interested in science fiction than mystery although I've been reading mystery since I well almost since I could read adult books was at about age 12. Um, anyway, so I, I was writing what I liked, which is true now, too. Mm-hmm. But then I was really into science fiction, and I was into Star Trek. I, for some reason, thought maybe I could be one of those unique few, that small group that actually got published in a field that everybody who is a Star Trek fan wants to get published in. Mm-hmm. So I tried that out. I was not successful, and I, I switched to, to uh, copywriting and uh, writing professionally, but writing uh, for business and, and education. Mm-hmm. I kept writing stories, but I didn't write my next novel until I was in hospital for surgery, and I had a terrible roommate, very talkative, and I, I needed something to bury myself in so it looked like I was busy. And I started writing the book that would become Under a Texas Star, which was my first published novel. Mm-hmm. And it went through many transitions, and many transitions in two decades before it got published. Mm-hmm. And a part of that was because of technology. When I finally did get it onto a computer, I got it onto a Commodore Plus 4. And I couldn't get it off again because it became a defunct machine. Mm-hmm. Part of it, was, of course, is that I started having family, and I'm taking care of the family got to be the highest priority. Mm-hmm. But that was the first novel I had. I, I eventually did get it polished up to the point where that was my first novel. And that was Under a Texas Star, and that is a great book. And listeners, you can find that on Amazon um, for sure, as well as at other retailers. Um, I only mention Amazon not because I prefer them, but because, hey, it is the starting point. Let's be realistic. So if you find it there and you know what you're looking for, feel free to buy it anywhere. It doesn't have to be purchased from Amazon. Um, and it's a great book. And it's it's, a, it's sort of, a, I, I would classify it as a Western mystery, would you? Oh, absolutely. It was written, it was a Western. 
was uh, when I, at that point, I was going through my Western phase. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a tendency to uh, binge on different genres of books. Mm-hmm. And when I went into the hospital, I was binging on Westerns. So I wrote a Western. And it's the only Western as such I, I've ever written. I have written a novella, which is set in the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. And I kind of did, did that on demand, which was so nice. It, for a, an author who has been struggling for decades to get published, um, okay, on and off, because I also had to make a living and take care of my family, but still, decades, to have somebody turn around and say, can you write a novella for us? We want to publish it. Wow, wow. That, that is really, really pretty terrific. cool. That was really great. So I, I wrote that. Uh, there was actually two novellas in the book, and that was the, uh, Hazardous Unions. And I did that with Kat Flannery, who is a fellow uh, author with Imagine Books, mm-hmm. my first publisher. And it's, they are very nice, very nice stories. But we were a little bit ahead of the novella craze, mm-hmm. so it's not the best-selling book I ever did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Novellas happen to be really popular right now, and a lot of people have theorized that it's um, due to shorter attention spans, people on the run, and there's probably some truth to that. I mean, if you can get your teeth into something where the story moves right along and uh, comes to a satisfying conclusion fairly quickly, then you can make time to read. But the biggest complaint I hear from adults is that they just don't have the time to read that they used to have. true yeah you know it's that just and that reflects the fact that it's uh, that close 
in what it takes to... Well, the platforms have certainly had a huge bearing on what we produce as writers and how we produce it. Um, the, the advent of e-publishing has been a phenomenal breakthrough. And what it's meant is what used to be a sweeping epic saga is now three novellas. You know, uh, yeah. if you take a look at, at works like The Hunger Games, which I absolutely adored, I mean, I suppose there's love it or hate it people out there, but um, I adored it and my daughter adored it. We could not get enough of it and we were really sorry when it was finished. But um, again, that would have been one sweeping novel in the old days. And we would have loved it and we would have hated for it to end. And instead, it's three novellas, you know, which is fine. I mean, it's certainly legitimate, you know. And one of the reasons for that was that because there were magazines who would serialize it. Yeah. Um, Dickens, most of his epic novels started off being serialized. Yes. And, of course, being paid by the word, which is why they're so epic in length. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to I have to tell our listeners that if I had to choose only one author who has influenced me and who I have loved from the time I could read, it's Dickens. So, so and he did. He started out as a serial writer, and he was a flawed human being, but he was such a writer. My goodness, it's true. Mm-hmm. And yep. In fact, it took until I think um, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series before he was ever outsold. Oh, wow, that's it, it quite a run. Like, I think so. Well, Terry, Terry Pratchett might have outsold him, but he would draw large audiences. There's a lot that we do now that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing back then. Dickens went on book tours. He mm-hmm. would read his books aloud, uh, and he'd get huge audiences for it, and that's something they had, you know, most authors don't get, unless they're really famous. Yeah. But we all do it. Yeah. It's yeah. part of what we do. That's right. That part, of it's, um, there's a new form to things, but uh, what we have to do as authors hasn't changed that much in its, in the meetup. No, it really is the just form, trying, yes, trying new things, things, using new platforms, using new technologies, trying new things, trying new methodologies, but the end art hasn't changed that much. It's the art of the word. And getting to that, um, you you belong to a, a group called the Deadly Dames. I want to get to your work with the CWC, but can you first tell me a little bit briefly about uh, your association with the Deadly Dames and um, how that has worked for you and, and what you do with them? Well, we started off as a writer's group, and it's the first writer's group I ever belonged to that I didn't have to quit because of family illness, so I'm very fond of it for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, it's very true that when you are starting off, especially, you you want to other people to read your work and have with a critical eye, but with constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. And that's tough, you know, to get that group where you know you don't have egos involved. And that's it. That's what I found with Deadly Dames. Mm-hmm. We read out our work. We're all professional authors. We're all either award winners or have been nominated for awards. But we still have that same need to get feedback as we're writing to make sure what we're, what we're writing is good enough to get printed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it reflects who we are and, and it's coherent. Mm-hmm. So that's how 
for re- you know we all have to do our self promotion, mm-hmm. and we decided to do it together, and that has been brilliant, okay. absolutely brilliant, because it's so awkward sitting at a table in a in a bookstore all by yourself, hoping that somebody will come by. Mm-hmm. But you sit up on a, at a table with three to four other authors, mm-hmm. and you you draw an audience. Yes, and you're a merry merry band of sisters, and people are drawn to fun. They're drawn to laughter. They're drawn to good conversation. And when you're what I would call a merry band of sisters together, I think that does draw people, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. It really does. Uh, We get, you know, we get uh, gigs at libraries more often because we we suit what they need to do. Really, you're only going to show up as a single author at a library if you're, I don't know, mm-hmm. if Yes, yes, yes. If you're a top you know, name, in the, yeah. In the high caliber. Yeah. You get a, a larger draw. We have, there's enough variety. We all write uh, crime fiction. We're actually all members of Crime Writers of Canada. That's how we met. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we all write slightly different genres within it. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we cover spectrum. Okay. And that, okay. So we can compare and we can, you know, if somebody comes to us and they're not really big into the cozy mysteries, well, they know that they have the whodunit and the suspense and the caper there as well. To yes. To, yes, and I know who you're referring to uh, with each of those subgenres. But for the sake of our listeners, can you name some of your fellow dames? Oh, of course. Uh, well, for the capers, Melody Campbell. Uh, who writes the Goddaughter series, and is definitely an award winner with that. Uh, the Cozies, uh, Janet Bolin, who is now known as Ginger Bolton, mm-hmm. because in the cozy industry, they'd love you to change your name. Mm-hmm. Different author for different series, even if it's the same author writing it. And our suspense writer is um, Catherine Astolfo, mm-hmm. who is... Uh, by the way, is up for a um, Arthur Ellis Award. For she short, certainly is. She, she certainly is. Yes. And again, I remind our listeners that we're actually recording in April of 2018. And the awards gala for the Arthur Ellis Awards is going to be May 24th, which won't mean anything to you when this airs in October, except that, uh, yes, Catherine Astolfo has been nominated for her story, The Outlier, which appeared in 13 Claws, which was brought to you by Carrick Publishing. So that's my, my little boast fest. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> I know I'm you've got another boast. person to name, so I'm going to let you go ahead and do that. Uh Oh, sorry, now I've gone blank. Uh, there's myself, mm-hmm. and I write the whodunits mostly, but across, as you, know, as you can see, I mean, I have a Western mystery. Um, I have a detective mystery, and with a ghostwriter, I have a paranormal, paranormal suspense mystery. And so that, that's quite a variety, but they're all in that kind of, in that whodunit frame. Mm-hmm. And then we have... How can I do this? Joan, Joan O'Callaghan, yes. who is also yes, another uh, short story writer and also uh, a working um, non-fiction author. She is um, a teacher's teacher by uh, 
profession. She works for uh, Teachers College. That's right. Yeah. She teaches at Oise, and, so and she, she is responsible for right. the excellent quality of teachers who come out of our Ontario schools. And uh, um, so that segues, that segues into, because you are all uh, CWC members, you're all members of the Crime Writers of Canada, but Alison, you've also worked for years with the Crime Writers of Canada as pretty much their administrative backbone and um, their online persona. Uh, can you tell us about that work and, and what your association with the CWC has has meant to you and, and uh, brought to you and, and how it has enhanced your writing? Well, first off, I would never have found my first publisher without CWC. Uh, my first publisher, uh, Cheryl K. Tardif, was also a member. Uh, she's also a self-published author, and she decided to go into business as a publisher herself, but a story you are probably quite familiar with, mm-hmm. and um, you know she started Imagine Books, and I met her before she. Be- I, I was her first author mm-hmm. on the string, yeah, because uh, because I, we met through CWC, and uh, her first few authors were actually from CWC because these mm-hmm. are authors she knew and she knew the work of. Um, I started work. I was invited to join the board, and then there was a. Uh, there was a, a need for somebody other than the executive director because the organization was growing, somebody who could take care of the management of publications. CWC produces something like 25 publications a year. Wow. We produce Crime Beat, our public newsletter, 10 times a year. Uh, Crime Time, our members-only newsletter, comes out 10 times a year. And then there's, yeah, it's more like 25, 26. Uh, cool Canadian Crime is kind of a, uh, it used to be an annual, now it's an annual which is updated quarterly, so it comes out four times a year. Mm-hmm. And that um, promotes our members' books that come out in that calendar year. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the annual report and a bunch of other, you know, our yeah. annual calendar, uh, not calendar, but uh, poster, quite a few things. And it's just impossible for one person to do everything, although for years, Charles Friedman was that one person who yes. did everything. Yes, I know. My mind goes right there, too. And if there is one person who can be the one person in any organization, it really is Cheryl. But the thing was, it was a much smaller pond at that time. And that's not to take anything from Cheryl, because everything it is and will become really springboarded off of Cheryl. I, I can't overstate that. But it grew. It outgrew itself, didn't it, Allison? It, it very much did. Uh, it, face it, CWC started with a group of authors meeting in a bar mm-hmm. and saying, let's be associated. Um, it, it, in a lot of ways, it, it had bore more resemblance to the Deadly Dames than it does to the organization it became. Mm-hmm. Because they would get together monthly, they might get a speaker, they might, you know, they talk about their work. Uh, but it's from there it grew into a national organization, yeah. and uh, it, there came a tipping point when one staff member—well, for a long time they didn't even have a staff member; it only had volunteer. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it reached its tipping point where it needed a staff member, and that was Cheryl. And then uh, when Cheryl was forced by uh, ill health to uh, retire, or at least for a little while, because um, she's back and doing all kinds of stuff now, mm-hmm. she ended up, well, one person, it turned out, couldn't replace her. And so eventually two people did, and that was Melanie Campbell as executive director and myself as uh, publication coordinator. And I know full well from my years on the board that things don't run without you, Allison. So kudos to you. Um, oh, well, you do a you great job, and I don't know how often it's stated, but it needs to be stated clearly. You, you do a wonderful job for the association, and it is for our listeners out there. If you're a crime writer, you consider yourself a crime writer, whether you're published or not, you should become a member of the Crime Writers of Canada if you're located in Canada because this is our professional organization. It is the professional organization. You can join up as a, a professional author member or you can join up as an associate member if you're not yet published. Um, you, you know, so there's, there's the two tiers of, of association and you should belong. You really should. I can't state that enough. Here you go. <laughs> Me and my big mouth. <laughs> I want to talk to you before we wrap up about your latest book, Ghost Writer, because it looks fabulous. I bought a copy. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but it looks absolutely fabulous. Tell us a little bit about it. This is where I, I'm kind of coming back to my roots um, with this, because this is a, a type of story that I have loved all my life. It involves the mystery, it involves some romance, but I've always liked ghost stories, and uh, this one, uh, this one definitely involved it. In fact, there are some uh, autobiographical parts to the the book uh, when it, it, it with ghosts. Uh, one part is in the introduction where uh, Jen Kirby sees her grandmother when she's very young as a ghost when her grandmother dies. And that happened to me when I was six years old. Mm. I saw my, my grandmother visited me and said goodbye. And I found out the next day that she had died overnight. Mm. Now, I'm enough of a skeptic that I'm willing to believe that it wasn't really a ghost. It could have been me hearing things that were going on in the house and then interpreting into a dream. But it felt like a ghost. And so... I think that's what started my interest in it. And also why I find ghost, um, ghost stories like the ghost in Mrs. Muir and uh, that kind of the ghost stories where it's not meant to horrify, but the ghost is another character in the story. Yes, yes, more of a gentle presence, of more of a gentle presence or a friendly presence um, or sometimes even an accidental presence, a presence that doesn't know what it is, um, as in... Um, as in, oh, what was the title of I See Dead People? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Which was which was an oddly beautiful movie in a strange way. I mean, it was sometimes horrific, sometimes violent, but, you know, and I, I, I don't believe in spoilers even in an old movie. Um, so if anyone hasn't seen it, I'm not going to give away the ending, but it was definitely uh, an unusual story and told in an unusual manner 
Um, but yes, I, I think about the ghost and uh, is it the ghost of Mrs. Miller? Is that the proper title? A ghost is the ghost of Mrs. Muir. Mrs. Muir. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. The ghost of Mrs. Muir, and uh, oh, and that actually had a profound influence on me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the original movie, uh, because the story goes at the end, he takes away her memory of him so that she can live in the real world and without being haunted by him. And she doesn't re- reunite and rem- remember him mm-hmm. until she dies. I hated that. Mm-hmm. I hated it. I hate the idea of somebody taking your memories away. Yes. I think your memories are what make you who you are. Yeah. And so uh, when I was writing early uh, ghost fiction, I would <laughs> actually, I wrote a lot of fan fiction when I was at university because that's all I had time for. It's, it's, it's like you have read, ready made characters and you get to. Um, you get to do with them what you want to do with them instead of what they've handed to you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I would always do is correct the things that I thought <laughs> they made a mistake about. And one of those things was that, that idea of taking away somebody's memories because it would make their life easier. Yeah, there's a Jim Carrey movie, um, The Eternal Sunshine of the... Oh, gosh, I can't come up with the full title. I'm really drawing blanks today. Sorry, Allison. Yeah. But I think it's called yeah, okay. something along the lines the of the... Email. I know the first three words are correct, so I'm sure our listeners can Google it. The Eternal Sunshine of the Uncluttered Mind, I'm going to say, although I know that uncluttered is not the right word. All the other words there are correct, and it's Jim Carrey. Yeah. And it's not a ghost story, but yes, it ties into what you're talking about, about having your memories taken away. And... Um, no, it's it's horrific. It's one of the worst horrors you can imagine because we all have to consider when we're old and alone. You know, what do we have? We have our memories, and if they're good memories, they can really carry you. That's true. That's mm-hmm. very true. And memory is a very important part of a ghostwriter because it's not like her interact, uh, Jen's interaction with ghosts is not like, say, for instance, Ghost Whisperer where they talk to her and, and, and present their mystery and tell her to solve them, basically. She sees the memories of ghosts. That's what she sees most clearly. Later she gets a bit more developed where she can interact with the ghosts that are actually there, but for the most part, she sees the ghosts and she sees their memories of what was going on. And it turns out that ghosts are no more... A aren't any better witnesses than the living when it comes to solving a crime. <laughs> so she, it, it, takes, uh, it takes time. She go, It starts off with um, a little conceit, a uh, bit of myself into it too. I've done a lot of ghostwriting, um, mostly nonfiction and mostly for education. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I made Jen Kirby a ghostwriter and I gave her the opportunity reason she goes on this expedition to the Arctic is because she's made an offer she can't refuse. Oh. Named credit on the book. Okay. Something every ghostwriter wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be actually out there and people know that it's your work that they're reading. Mm-hmm. So she goes on this uh, uh, with a, a client friend on this expedition to find out what happened to a submarine, which has been discovered thanks to the melting of the ice cap and satellite photography in Canadian Arctic waters. Mm-hmm. So she has to have the, she, they, they go on this expedition. It involves uh, family members of the crew 
the, the, the uh, submarine went missing during the Cold War, so these are um, adults who were kids when they lost their parents or family. And she needs the permission of the Canadian government and, of course, the American government because it's an American vessel. So you have a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine on the scene, you have a Canadian frigate, and you have this expedition boat, which looks like, which would be a nice size if you didn't see it beside these two behemoths. Mm-hmm. And they go to, um, they, they go to raise the, uh, the submarine station and find out what happened. She starts having, she starts seeing ghosts. And she hasn't seen them since she was a child, but she's seen them again. Mm-hmm. And when she gets trapped, uh, when an explosion happens and she gets trapped on the submarine for a while, she starts actually actively looking for these to see, you know, for one thing, to keep her company. She's all alone in the dark. So she starts seeing their memories. And from there, she has this, she has this drive uh, that's more than, you know, this is a job. Mm-hmm. to solve this mystery. As it turns out, not all of the dead want the mystery to be solved. And there's a lot of the living that don't want the truth to come out because there's some awkward political parts to it since it happened during the Cold War. Hmm. What they were doing up there in the first place. Right. Uh, and in Canadian waters. Not, not international waters. Mm-hmm. So that's how it progresses. So she has... As she has the, the, there's the suspense and mystery and the characters who are working with her and against her, and sometimes it's hard to tell which one they are mm-hmm. um, in real life, and then she has that same thing, that same dynamic going on with the ghost. Uh, somebody, one of those crew members is the one who's responsible for the death. Okay. Okay. Well, that and sounds so that sounds really fascinating. So, in effect, she's really ghostwriting for the ghosts, is she? In a way, yes. Yeah, so she's because channeling the their stories. the ones who were actually killed want the mystery solved. They're mm-hmm. not even sure of exactly what happened, because each one of them sees different parts. Mm-hmm. And she gets, and we, as the, as the story progresses, uh, we, in the, in the living world, as it were, uh, evidence, you know, hard forensic evidence comes up to support things. But in the her, the ghost's memory, the story builds as she starts to put together the perceptions mm-hmm. of the different crew members. Mm-hmm. Well, I love so this concept I, I because it. it really is traditional deduct- detective work where you're interviewing yes. all these various players and each one sees the event from a different point of view. And when you piece them all together, you get some Frankenstein understanding of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Mm-hmm. And which is one of the kind of mysteries, by the way, that I've always enjoyed. Same here. Same the here. Different points of view of people. Yes, and, yes. And except in this case, the people are dead. <laughs> find out what the reality is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I really love the concept. I mean, as a writer. And as somebody who is fascinated with uh, literary works, I love concepts that are just a little quirky, just a little different, and have some meat. Like, it's fine. Anybody can come up with a great, exciting concept, but it has to have some meat to carry it, and I love that. 
It's really, really very good. Anyways, Allison, I, I thank you for coming on Dead to Rights, and I hope you're going to stay on the line for a moment after I turn off the sound here. I, I really enjoyed having you on and talking about your work with the CWC and, and your new book, Ghost Writer, which everybody should look for, please. Um, it's a terrific book by Allison Bruce. Thank you so much, Donna. I want to thank Allison Bruce for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. And I know that you will have enjoyed her interview as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Our short story for today is Family Values by Sylvia Maltosh Warsh from EFD1, Starship Goodwords, Carrick Publishing, 2012. Sylvia was born in Germany and came to Canada when she was four years old. She earned a BA and a Master's in Linguistics from the University of Toronto. Her short stories and poetry have appeared in Canada and the U.S. Sylvia is the author of the Rebecca Temple Mystery Series published by Dundurn. To Die in Spring, 2000, was nominated for an Ellis Award for Best First Novel. Find Me Again, 2003, won an Edgar Award from Mystery Writers of America and was nominated for two Anthonys. Season of Iron, 2006, was shortlisted for a Relit Award, and The Queen of Unforgetting, published in 2010, was chosen for a plaque by Project Bookmark Canada. Best Girl, a Rapid Reads book, came out in 2012. Sylvia lives in Toronto, where she teaches writing to seniors. Family Values by Sylvia Maltosh Warsh he was an 80-year-old horror, thought Libby, stirring the tomato sauce on the stovetop. Still lived in that ancient house, a wretched old man who hated everyone. He should have been the one to lose his memory and forget their only child, not Mama who loved her, who always took her side and protected her from his rages, who lately peered at her trying to excavate some memory of her daughter from an unyielding mind. Mama's old age pension barely covered the bed in the short-staffed nursing home. She shared a cramped room with three other crazy women, one who screamed day and night. Libby had asked about the price of a private room. Well beyond her office administrator's salary, it turned out, and how long would that job last now that she had let herself go, hair unkempt, clothes haphazard? She carefully steamed the cabbage leaves in the pot. The home said her mother was agitated all day until Libby arrived after work. No wonder. By the time she got there, Mama's diaper was soiled and she was starving. Libby was exhausted going daily. Her father never visited. The home suggested she pay a caregiver to be with Mama while she was at work. But that took money. The house would bring in money, yet her father would never agree to sell. And he could be around for another 20 years, still tall and strong for 80. Anger kept him going. While she was at home, he had slapped her regularly. She was a pile of crap, he said. Why couldn't he have a son? She hadn't spoken to him in months. The last time she phoned, he cursed her and hung up. Maybe she could convince him to sell. 
fat chance. But he did have a soft spot. One evening she arrived at his door carrying a warm foil-covered pan. Get the hell out of here, he yelled behind the closed door. I brought you something. Cabbage rolls. He hated to cook, loathed meals on wheels. Cabbage rolls were his favorite. He opened the door, squinting at her with disgust. How do I know you didn't poison him? I'll have some too, she said. He let her in. He looked thinner, a bit stooped, still a head taller than her, a force to be reckoned with. In the kitchen, she served the rolls. He sat down and started to eat, ignoring her. I want to sell the house, she said. He stopped chewing. Did your mother send you? Yes, she wants you to sell, Libby avoided his eyes. She was always a crazy bitch. Tell her to go to hell. He pointed at her plate. You're not eating. She took a bite to reassure him. He resumed eating. She rose quietly as if going to the counter. Instead, she stopped behind him. He would never change. Just grow meaner with age. Crueler. She took the clear plastic bag from her pocket. Holding her breath, she flung the bag over his head and pressed it against his face. He screamed, outraged, clawing at the bag. He was half choking, half coughing. She held the bag tight, hardened by the memory of his hand on her face, the burden of his insults. Unexpectedly, he swung his elbow back and jabbed her in the stomach. The pain almost made her let go of the bag, but she thought of her darling mother and held on till the plastic filled all the crevices of his face. And that has been Family Values by Sylvia Maltash-Warsh. I want to thank Sylvia for this wonderful story that was featured in EFD1 Starship Goodwords, 2012 Carrick Publishing. Are you a published author? Would you like to be profiled on Dead to Rights, the podcast? We're now open for slots to fill in 2019. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. Do you have a question for any of our featured authors regarding the book business or writing tips? Do you have a theme or a topic you'd like us to address? We'd love to hear from readers and writers alike, and you can touch base with us at deadtorights.ca, on Facebook under Dead to Rights, or on Twitter at Dead to Rights Pod. Of course, you can always find me, Donna Carrick, on Facebook, under my personal page, or as Carrick Publishing. We're also tweetable at Donna underscore Carrick, at Alex underscore Carrick, or at Carrick Pub. If you have questions related to the book industry for any of our authors, don't hesitate to reach out through our online forums. All of our music for Dead to Rights, including the theme song Eyes of Gold, have been composed and performed by Ted Carrick. Be sure to join us next week when we bring you a real treat, an interview with Joseph Glasner, And uh, that's something that you'll really be looking forward to because Joseph is a very interesting gentleman indeed. 
So have a great week and we'll see you next time.